Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, January 14th, 2017. Praise Yahweh to God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will have something a little different. Tonight we will have Pastor Mark Downey here with us, and his latest sermon, The Justice in Mercy. Mercy is the... um. The most important component in the providence of God, which is understood, which must be understood before Christians can really understand how all Israel is saved. If we do not understand the mercy of God and the extent of that mercy which he has promised to the children of Israel, we are never going to understand those passages in the New Testament, in the prophets, that promise the salvation of all of the seed of Israel, the justification of all of the seed of Israel. And we lose sight of the fact that it is God's will and not the will of man which shall prevail over his creation. And with this, I will introduce Pastor Downey. Hello, Mark. Hello, Bill. Always good to be with you. Um, you always seem to say, and, and tonight it's going to be a little different. <laughs> oh, but, I'm sorry. Uh, well, well, I mean, people are used to hearing me talk about Jews and the protocols <laughs> and things like that. And we can't, well, we have to have the edifying side here once in a while, right? <laughs> well, uh, this is a, a subject I've been wanting to tackle for uh, two or three months. Um, every now and then I get an email from uh, somebody that asked a, a rather um, challenging question. And, and in fact, that was a, a question I put on the Christagenia forum a, a while back and still didn't quite, wasn't able to uh, crack the nuts. It's a tough nut to crack until um, uh, a week ago uh, you uh, asked me to, be on the program. I think it was last Saturday's show. And, um, and so I've been, um, putting my nose to the grindstone all week because you gave me a key, uh, as to uh, the nucleus of the, uh, the problem. And with that, I, um, I pursued my studies this week and, and came up with, um, what we'll be discussing tonight. Wonderful. But first, I'd like to uh, open with a prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for thy word, which you have shown to Jacob Israel only, and that you have not shown them to any other nation. They have not known thy judgments. We are thankful that you love Jacob, but hate Esau in spite of what the world may say. We are thankful that your law is perfect, that your justice is truth, and that your mercy endures forever. We pray for your blessings upon our message tonight and that it will bless those who hear it. May your humble servants, William Fink and Mark Downey, represent the good news to the brethren wherever they may be. 
and we will give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Praise Christ. Well, to begin, our church recently received a letter with uh, very pointed questions, as I said, and, and all of them revolved around the seeming disparity of justice regarding various biblical characters who committed similar offenses but received dissimilar judgments of the law. I appreciate tough questions that force us to seek answers. As Proverbs 27:17 tells us, iron sharpens iron, suggesting how learned Christian brethren sharpen one another's minds by conversation. And sometimes the question is just as important as the answer. The more clearly the question is enunciated, the more clearly the answer can be elucidated and both parties are edified. In fact, the entire body of Christ is enlightened. That is what I hope to accomplish with our subject tonight. Let me give you a brief synopsis of the question and then a brief answer, and then we can elaborate on ancillary branches of the same tree. Now, the tree uh, is symbolic of God's law, with two main trunks being justice and mercy. Uh, it's a constant theme throughout the Bible. One without the other will cause the tree to wither and die. In essence, it is a divine balance of, for life. The Adamic race had fallen from immortality to mortality in the garden, but God showed mercy even though their sin would affect thousands of generations right up to this day and age. Thanks to our original parents, there is a time to be born and a time to die. The question posed by our friend was, why is there not justice? He went on to explain what he meant by saying Esau was hated by God for interracial marriage, whereas Solomon and other Israelites did the same thing. Why was Esau condemned and Solomon got to write part of the Bible, he asked. David murdered someone and never received a death penalty. Now, I'm just paraphrasing what he said. Uh, he got to write the Psalms, and there were collateral victims because of his sin. And the line of Christ came through him, he asked. Our friend was of the opinion that it sounded like his sins were blessed after his death. He asked us, quote, do we all get to kill someone, repent, and then not get punished? He went on to say, Seems like I read from a sermon somewhere that one of the curses of David was that Israel would be constantly at war. Maybe my memory is wrong here. If that is true, do all of us know why we are even being punished? That is the problem with punishing posterity. They don't even know what or why something is wrong. End quote. Well, let's pause here and say that it's easy to get the impression that there's no justice. However, this has a direct bearing on how we understand God himself. If we are to believe his word, according to Deuteronomy 32.4, among many, we read, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. 
a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he, end quote. And then we read in Psalms 89, 14, justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face, end quote. Here we see justice and mercy in the same verse. If we believe that there is no justice, then the Bible makes a serious contradiction and puts our faith in jeopardy. If we believe the Bible, then the problem is with us not yet understanding God, and that is faith. Now, faith is the expecting of an assurance, evidence of the facts not seen. Hebrews 11.1 from the Christogenia New Testament. God's justice and mercy cannot be understood without a very important key, and that is his plan for the ages. You might ask, what is that plan? To answer plainly and honestly, I'm sorry, I believe that we have lost Pastor Downey. That this will only be temporary. That's okay. The key to the plan, the, the key to the understanding of justice and mercy that Mark is talking about is that the divine will of God and his promises have to be executed. Jacob was promised by God to carry the vows which God made to his fathers so that the promise to Abraham would be kept. And Jacob received it because of the sin of Esau. And Esau was rejected because he was a race mixer and the promises couldn't be kept. In turn, Judah was granted mercy for race mixing, and Judah was granted mercy for race mixing, so that Yahweh would keep the promises to Jacob and Abraham. That's why Judah was granted forgiveness. We don't know what's going to happen at the level of personal judgment with Esau or with Judah. We don't know to what extent they will be punished for their sins on a personal level, but Esau couldn't keep the birthright because of his race mixing, and Judah was granted mercy by God, and we ended up with a legitimate tribe of Judah, God taking advantage of Judah's incontinence, only because of the promises which Yahweh made to Jacob, not for Judah, Judah wasn't granted mercy because of Judah. Solomon wasn't granted mercy because of Solomon. Solomon was granted mercy because Yahweh God had to keep the promises that he made to David. The justice... <laughs> Hello. I just rambled for a minute. I didn't ramble for a minute. I tried to explain that, that, that key that you, you said is so important to understanding justice in, in mercy and and... You may continue where we were unceremoniously disrupted. That's okay. Well, uh, when we have the key of, of race, it unlocks the mysteries of God. Um, let me say parenthetically that if our movement fails to understand the significance of God's justice and mercy, 
we will fall short of the glory of God. We will not move if we cannot discern and identify how God's law works. The law will remain dormant in many of our people's heart and mind, even though they have the new covenant, which puts the law within our souls. There will be a conflict between the operations of righteousness and the operations of error. Let me remind you, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is a crucial truism. We judge things every day. But if we do not judge according to the law, we are not following the way Christ set before us. The original plan in Genesis was to take dominion of the earth, not to rule over and have proximity to hybrids, which God did not create. If I may borrow a a simple cliche, birds of the same feather flock together. In nature, birds do not share and build nests as a matter of communal property putting their eggs in the same basket. It would be chaos, as differing species require different diets and habits for their young. And yet, we're told it takes a village to raise a child, alluding to village people of the human race, I guess. Such ungodly thinking puts our status with God in a dormant stage. We are deaf, blind, and dumb, as far as understanding God's plan for the ages. The new covenant will be deactivated until we balance the laws of justice and mercy. The people who doubt that all Israel will be saved, or as Paul said in Romans chapter, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that as in Adam all men die in Christ, all men shall be made alive. Those people are thinking with their own carnal minds and are missing the bigger picture of the plan of God for man, which was laid from the beginning. I I will talk about more of that at the end of this presentation. And if you believe in predestination, uh, which is God having more intelligence than all of man's knowledge put together, then you have to believe that God would be working with a pretty tough people group. Uh, to perform his will. I say that tongue-in-cheek. People group comes from um, the creationist, uh, who are headquartered right here in uh, northern Kentucky, the uh, Ken Ham's group, the Answers in Genesis, which really aren't very good answers at all, and who built a recent uh, $70 million theme park, uh, a replica of Noah's Ark. So... Uh, I say people group almost sarcastically. But God is God because he's omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. Adamic society didn't work out so well because their progenitors, Adam and Eve, became flesh. They inherited a sin nature which would require a system of law. Their descendants, us, are described in Acts 7.51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Well, such a stubborn people are in dire need of divine mercy if God's blueprint for the future is to ever advance. 
but only the father of such fleshly children knows what's good for them. You know, how many children are wiser than their parents? Here's an important point that Christ made to the Pharisees. You are those justifying themselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is exalted among men is an abomination before God. If we're not careful, if we are so blatantly stiff-necked, we are no better than the Pharisees. You say, well, how can that be? We are racially pure and they're mongrels. Well, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? God knows when we're learning the way of the heathen and becoming a wigger. God tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And taking to heart, do not judge lest you should be judged in context to Solomon and Esau means we should not pass judgment on what God has decreed because we might not have all the facts. Yes, both race mixed, but God's purpose superseded what they did and he knew their hearts. We will eventually know what the deal is. Quote, therefore judge nothing before the proper time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Now, please don't get me wrong. We do judge things, but it's according to the law if it is to be righteous. And I might add, just for free, that preterism, the belief that all prophecy has come and gone, has got to be one of the most... I think we may have lost Pastor Downey again. I'm, I'm sorry about the connection problems. He was about to go on a digression concerning preterism or preterism and calls it one of the most preposterous presumptions there is. And it is indeed because the belief that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 A.D., is actually the belief that God has nothing to do with his creation ever since then and has relegated authority that can only be his and, and relegated that to us. <laughs> well, as I was saying, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. To know God and to know the adversaries of God and to know what to do. We had spoken about God's plan and how he uses men both as examples and in order to fulfill his will. If Judah were not granted a degree of mercy, then the promise to Jacob in the words of Jacob, Jacob himself would have failed. So God kept both his promise to Jacob and had mercy upon Jacob by sparing Judah. 
If Solomon were destroyed for his sin, then the promise to David could not have been kept, and God would be a liar. And who says that Esau himself, personally, was condemned beyond any other race mixers, when the only stated penalty, the penalty that Esau suffered in Scripture, was the loss of his birthright. Esau could not recover... Esau could not recover his birthright. Esau had no legitimate offspring, and therefore he could not expect to keep his birthright. So Yahweh used Esau as an example of the unrepentant race mixer who lost his birthright, but that doesn't mean that Esau personally will be punished beyond that. Esau, in the end, did... Exactly what Yahweh needed him to do, wanted him to do to make that example, and only God, for that reason, can judge even Esau. We can't judge Esau. We can judge Esau's progeny because they are all bastards. And if we encounter a fellow Christian who's a race mixer, we have a duty to exhort and, and admonish that person according to the law, and we have Esau as an example in order to attempt to correct our brother. But that doesn't mean that Esau himself it is going to be destroyed. We can't say that. Hello, Mark. Hi. We could use some prayer warriors for the Skype. <laughs> right. Um. Justice is giving everyone their due process, their day in court. We have a court of divine justice. We just don't use it. God judges the cause of sin. Man usually judges the person, which is not justice, but malice. We think the local municipal court all the way to the Supreme Court is all there is. Their goddess of justice is blindfolded. My God sees everything. God is love, and love is associated with the law. But it should be balanced with a God of wrath also. God weighs a person's guilt or innocence on the scales of his justice. His balance between right and wrong is perfection. Only God can determine the perfect verdict. His exposure of things hidden in darkness is the shining light of glory which is at our disposal to use any time we want. He has never misjudged anything. God's love for mankind is his love for justice, as he is not only just, but justice itself, just as much as love. For the Lord is our judge. He will save us from our own misguided judgments, what we think is right or wrong that is, the situational ethics of Judaism or secular humanism. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Asked James in 4.12. God is the one who will save one race and destroy racial abominations. Who is that? The Bible says all of Israel shall be saved and that all of the all of Israel shall be saved, and that all of the heathen and Edom, the descendants of Esau, shall be destroyed. And Mark goes on to say that every identity Christian should know these scriptures by heart. 
And indeed, every identity Christian should believe that all of Israel shall be saved without contention. This is probably the single biggest challenge that I have in my own ministry, is convincing the Pharisees amongst identity Christians that all of Israel shall be saved. And we cannot get to the next level of understanding without accepting that scripture. It's very clear in scripture, in in Micah, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, that Yahweh God has promised to cleanse all of the sin of the children of Israel without exception. In Micah chapter 7, he says that I will cast all of your sins into the sea and that he would forget them all without exception. Pastor Downey. Well, as I was saying, broken cisterns, a, a euphemism for hybrid human beings, cannot contain the word of God in their heart and mind. Therefore, they're, they're useless to the creator who called his creation good. What good is a leaky Well, Well, right. Christ said that no, no, no good tree could produce bad fruit. So how do you throw away good fruit? And, and no bad tree could possibly produce good fruit, so why should you try to keep bad fruit? A bastard is a bastard. And, and that's the way that the scripture really draw the line, draws the line. Once you understand and accept that, you could get to the next level and understand that there are rewards and lack of reward in, in the world to come. And that there are punishments for sin in this life. And that's without doubt. And and we should accept that. And, and we should anticipate the, the punishment when we do sin, if we are not repentant. Only God can judge the things in our hearts which lead us to make the decisions we have made, good or bad. Only he knows why the murderer murders, why the rapist raped. We have a promise that we will all be saved, but that does not mean that people who have done wrong won't be treated appropriately by God for their sins. Yes, and there's, there's so many examples like that, and, and they revolve around race. Um, I'm trying to emphasize the sovereignty of God so that we can eliminate our own private interpretation of what appears to be unfair or unjust. God lets the wicked prosper not only as his instruments to judge his own people, but to give them enough rope to hang themselves, to leave them utterly without excuse for being saved. But if we go back in history, we should also observe that the heart or attitude of Esau and Solomon were quite different. Esau never once repented of having strange wives and producing mongrel offspring. His mongrel wives were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. Esau dishonored his mother and father. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac. And in the next verse, Genesis 28, 9, he did the same darn thing. On the other hand, we all know that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Solomon started out good in his early life, 
But as he grew older, he forgot his own counsel and went whole hog with 700 wives and 300 concubines in violation of God's law, which warned his people that the racial alien would turn us away from our God to serve the alien gods. We find that he wrote one more book, Solomon, in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, that tells us the rest of the story. Solomon lamented, I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. Uh, but his harem did not bring happiness. Instead, he says, quote, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. At the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, we find wise counsel. It says, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Hindsight's 2020, right? And, and right, in my opinion, Ecclesiastes was written later in, later in life when Solomon did regret a lot of his sins. And it is a purposely cynical work. It was written with a very dismal outlook, so as to describe the, the, the total lack of hope which we have without God. And you could read all of the f first 10 or 11 chapters of, of Ecclesiastes and arrive at that conclusion, that's the story that it's telling. There's everything is vanity, everything is vanity without God. In the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, after Solomon basically admits for all those chapters the futility of having sought out his own ways, as Marcus pointed out, then in the end, he says in the last chapter, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, because he realizes that all things are vanity without God. And, and that's the lesson of Ecclesiastes. We have to, when we read that book, a lot of people like to take one passage out of the first 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes and make a doctrine out of it without realizing that it's purposely cynical and, and that, it re that it represents all of the sins and the vanity of man. And in the last verses of the book in, in the closing chapter Solomon realizes that with God it isn't vanity as long as we're with God and we're having a problem reconnecting to Pastor Downey and I really do apologize for the interruptions I'm sorry, my contact list is too long to scroll. We're trying to call his telephone. Hello. Hello. I don't know if you want to finish this program on a telephone, but I, I just couldn't get back through to you on Skype. Uh, we can do that, yeah. Whatever the makes Skype you comfortable. Skype is just really acting up. I'm sorry. It, it's um, We have to... Find a better internet connection in Kentucky. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, uh, we've never had this problem this bad before. No, no. We've been disconnected once or twice on, on 
on, on a particular program, but never like this. I can continue on the phone if you want. That's your prerogative. I, I mean, we can... Hopefully the audio is just as good. I'm willing to, okay. to do it. Okay, it, it's all yours. Okay, I'm going to take the hearing aid out of my ear. <laughs> Christian identity, identifying who does what, has the key to unlock why Esau and Solomon's posterity have two contrasting destinies. It's not only the motives of their heart, but the motive of God to establish his sovereignty. In other words, no matter what man does, thy will be done. It is not enough to be born white. The next step is to transform our fleshly life to a spiritual one, to bring forth the fruits of the kingdom. We can fail along the way, but God has given us remedy. We can be forgiven our sins through the blood of a kinsman redeemer, which no other religion or creatures have. Christ was not meant for a remedy to Esau or the myriad of other bastardizations. The story of Solomon is a painful one, seeing that whatever temporary pleasure he derived from such a inordinate number of wives was not worth the reciprocal consequences of the law. You know, there's two kinds of pain in life. One is discipline, weighing ounces. The other is regret, weighing tons. If we can reach the children of God with this message, then they will have the potential to become the sons of God and heirs of the promise. We don't want to see the self-imposed tribulations of a prodigal son, even though there was mercy when he came home. In the last verse of this book, Solomon writes, For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Solomon is fully convinced that all is vanity. In this world, and in this world, and that there's another world coming whereby people are adjudged to happiness or misery, having made their bed in the here and now. But one thing stands out among the distribution of punishments and rewards, and that is mercy. Did our inward and secret thoughts yearn at some point in our lives for grace, a pardon, or forgiveness for the wrongs we committed? Did we openly seek the blood on the cross? Consider that God's mercy is free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. No amount of animal sacrifices or religious rituals will earn one iota of mercy. It's a gift that will follow you to eternity. You will be saved in the next life in spite of your sins. However, to enter the kingdom or to rule and reign with Christ depends on what you do with your life. Faith without works is dead. Which leads back to the passage from Paul. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I, I think that's your line, Bill. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, right. I'm sorry, I forgot to mark it's not it off. not gray. <laughs> I, I forgot to mark it off. It, it's Mark has a copy of my notes. What, which leads back to the passage that this... 
what what you just said about no amount of animal sacrifices or religious rituals will earn right. one iota of mercy leads back to the passage of Paul, what which is the basis for for this um for this sermon, which I believe you're going to quote a little later, but you didn't quote it at the beginning. Right. And and that that is that it is not he that wills nor of him that runs, but of whom God chooses to show mercy. If God chooses to show mercy on on the entire race, as he has promised, who are we to complain? You can strive to be saved. And Paul's telling you that it's not, it's futile. You, You cannot strive to be saved. You cannot strive to earn the grace and mercy of God. The people who will obtain the grace and mercy of God are only the people to whom God promised that that grace and that mercy. And he promised that throughout the Old Testament to all of the children of Israel without exception. Identity Christians must understand that in order to properly apply Christian understanding, Christian mercy, love for you and and love for one's brother which is part of what you're you are trying to illustrate here that we have to get to that level of understanding that all of our race is saved so that we can understand what the love of God really is and what his divine plan for our race really is and as you said some of those who see the next world will have misery and that's written in Daniel, that some men are raised to everlasting contempt. But we should not wish such a thing upon our brethren. That's, if we wish such a thing upon our brethren, that is our own carnal mind and our own self-righteousness, which are doing that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul explains the possibility of being saved even when all of one's works are burned up in the fire. And this is the mercy of God, who had sworn to save Israel, even though they themselves had made a covenant with death. And he said that he would, he would annul it. When we accept this, then we can begin the work of healing our people through love, instead of destroying them through our own carnal judgment. Now, God's law should be executed in this life, there's no doubt. But we have to have love and mercy towards our brother, because that's what he requires of us. Well, I pray that uh, those listening uh, to this program here and later on um, can accept that concept, that as soon as we deviate uh from what God has determined to be right, uh, then we're playing God, so to speak. And and nothing good can come of it. If mercy is a, a primary tenet of the Word of God, then I ask people to please take note that the near extinction of God's people is the reason why. Let me just interject a question. Was it unfair or unjust that pre-Adamites, the Neanderthals, and other hominids became extinct? Where was God's mercy for them? 
And then the story of Phineas in Numbers 25 is an account of miscegenation that brought forth a plague in which 24,000 Israelites died. Today, we have abortion mills that kill over a million white babies. Now, neither tragedies are without cause. And this is the point of Christians praising the doctrine of mercy. We always come so close to utter death and destruction. So when Solomon finished building the great temple and they brought the ark to the Holy of Holies, there was a great sound of music and praise to the God of Israel, singing, He is good, His mercy endures forever. And then the Lord's temple was filled with a cloud. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering, for the glory of the Lord filled God's temple. It must have been awesome to behold and and humbling to see how God loves his people. As we know, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It was replaced by our physical body as the habitation of God to dwell among his people. If you think that God does not judge our nation for the murder of unborn, the unborn fetus, think again. The only mercy I can think of is sparing the innocent unborn from living in such a wicked and evil world that has lost its mind. But the lost sheep of house of Israel would be lost forever if it were not for the truth that his mercy endures forever. And, and that's another aspect of the judgment of God, that the nation, the people of the nation collectively are responsible for its sins. I, I don't see most Americans, most white Americans, I don't see them um, barnstorming and burning down abortion clinics, for instance, giving an example. Or, or destroying the banks, or, or anything else that oppresses our people. We don't do it. We, we are placated and comfortable in our own little bubble worlds, and we don't do anything to execute the judgment of God. So how do we condemn our brother? The lesson of the old temple was that we cannot save ourselves through sacrifices, rituals, and ceremonies, which are the works of the law. So Christ repeated the declaration from Hosea where Yahweh had said, It is mercy I require and not sacrifice. The people were performing sacrifices for their own justification and they were despising their own brethren. And, And we still have that pattern even in amongst identity Christians today. Yeah, and it's simply amazing to read Romans 8.1 when we consider that trait of our race being so stiff-necked. It, it seems to be perennial. It comes in cycles. We, we get delivered from adversity and get in our comfort zone and become oblivious to uh, all the bad things that surround us. But Romans 8.1 says, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Wow. If mercy were not an integral component of our Savior, I don't think he could be loved or obeyed by our people. It is really above and beyond anything we deserve. 
just as our society today seems doomed and impossible to rectify. Justice and mercy together gives us the spirit of Christ and thus hope. It gives us the means to change our minds, that is, repentance, and to some degree have the mind of Christ to live our lives according to his example. Who can be saved to enter the kingdom, the disciples wondered, if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? And Jesus told them, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. The good news is that there's one race of people for whom grace does not condemn, like the law. The function of grace is to make free from the bondage of sin. The law, on the other hand, condemns. The next verse is equally amazing. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made you free from the law of sin and death. Only one race was infused with the breath of life, otherwise known as the Spirit of God, and that is the offspring of Adam. Paul was speaking racially specific to Adam kind. Verse 9 establishes whom God hath chosen for mercy. Now you are not in flesh, but in spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But... If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not of him, end quote. That doesn't mean a mere estrangement, but rather an absolute antithesis. In Christian identity, we believe the racial message of the Gospels is an age-old conflict between Jacob Israel and Esau Edom. In other words, the unbridgeable gulf between the racially pure and the racially impure. It is nothing more or less than us versus them. They are not us, and we are not them. They cannot be of God. No, not one of them. All of Israel shall be saved, therefore all of the white race is of the Creator. And the frosting on the cake is indeed about us in verse 34. Who is to condemn us? For Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us. Paul was speaking about us white people, the true descendants of Adam and Jacob Israel. The Jewish poison in the well is the mistaken notion that if nothing is impossible for God, then he can turn sons of perdition into sons of God. Of course, such an idea is absurd and contrary to Scripture. The poison of universalism is now upon us. Well, well, nothing is impossible to God, but God demonstrates again and again that he keeps his law even when men fail to keep his law. And since Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, it is the folly of man to think that God may set aside his law for the sake of bastards. God may have mercy upon us for our sins, but he certainly won't accept the sin sin itself 
bastards are sin. They are the products of fornication. They are sin. And for those that would change the word of truth, I would tell them, let God be true and every one of them a liar. (laughs) Our flesh bodies are now the recipients of mercy, but not just anybody. Have you ever wondered why in modern times non-whites die by the thousands in calamities like earthquakes, cyclones, tsunamis, floods, etc., but we, we never hear of thousands of white people suffering the same fate? I think it's because his mercy endures forever for only one race of people, the sons of God, whom God made promises and covenants with exclusively. We've cited the anti-universalist teaching before, that God did not create Jews or any other mixed-blood abominations. Therefore, they have nothing to claim in regards to mercy, grace, or forgiveness. In fact, ethnic cleansing historically has been the practice of tribal savages to clear land for the ethnos, that is, nations of pagans and heathens. Every time a ferry sinks in Bangladesh or, or or there's a destructive earthquake in Haiti, we should rejoice. And and we should rejoice to hear the plagues like Ebola among the blacks in Africa, or or the engineering mishaps of the Chinese, like when when, when a dam breaks and entire towns of people are flooded to death. We should rejoice in that and, and hope and pray that they soon all suffer in the same manner. We anticipate the day. Well, I think it's sending a clear message to our people, Bill, that there is statistically quite uh, a difference between um, uh, the the racial uh, victimization of of all these calamities. It's quite striking if somebody were to make a, a graph or something like that. But God's plan is to cleanse Canaan uh, and was for the purpose of establishing a promised land for Israel. And we read of this campaign in Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 5. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them. And here's the important line. And show them no mercy. End quote. This begs the question, if God tells us to have no mercy on the racial alien, then why would anybody think God himself would have mercy on them? The justice in mercy is reserved for Israel only. The Bible is not about the racial alien other than the negative things it has to say about them. God foreknew the destinies of Solomon and Esau, knowing that Esau had no desire to chronicle his life in a circumspect manner, which would become part of Holy Writ. If Esau had any kind of spirit, it was a spirit of blasphemy and contempt for the Abrahamic history and 
series of covenants God made with his ancestors. He never had uh, the mercy of a road to Damascus experience like Paul because God knew every molecule of motivation in his heart, and it was not good. Yeah, you know, the scripture tells us, and, and we see it even in the promise to Rebecca, that, that God knew in advance the nature of Jacob and Esau and planned in advance to use these two men as examples. Jacob cared for the will of his parents and the promises made to his fathers. While Esau took his heritage and his birthright for granted, and despise them in exchange for his own immediate gratification. So Jacob was renamed Israel because he should rule with God. And we see that the model for ruling with God is love for your heritage and respect for your ancestors. But Esau was renamed Edom, a word which is, and, 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 and even identity Christians miss this because they probably wouldn't like to admit it. Edom is a word which is exactly similar to the word Adam in Hebrew. And it's only spelled Edom in order to distinguish it from the word Adam. But Esau was renamed Edom because he represented the carnal aspect of man and the damage done to the birthright which results from the pursuit of fleshly gratification at the expense of spiritual responsibility. So what we see when God renamed Jacob Israel and Esau Edom is that man is challenged to reach above his carnal nature and into the spiritual realm in order that he can rule with God, in order that he could be an overcomer. Yeah, and, and we are trying to teach a lesson tonight, which begs the question of the comments you just made. You know, how many people, how many white people are like Jacob today, and how many people are like Esau? <laughs> we have Esau's all around us. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I think uh, it, it uh, would be statistically uh, uh, tending more towards Esau than Jacob, unfortunately. You know, the context of Romans 9, uh, verses 10 through 13, is that God hated Esau when he was an unborn child in the womb of his mother, which you mentioned earlier. Maybe that's because his posterity, the Jews, would become the world's foremost abortionist advocates of pro-choice rather than God's will. Quote, for though her sons had not yet been born or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, end quote. But the election is that God chose one above the other. It's almost as if God had a time machine and could see the future. <laughs> well, well he, he did create time and space after all. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called 
according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. Well, Esau was never called, and he hated God so much that he sold his birthright, as you said, to his brother. And don't you know, the Edomite Jew is forever crying about being a persecuted people. The descendants of Jacob are the elect, the called, and the heirs of the promises given to Abraham. Historically, the Jew has served the white race, albeit underhandedly and contemptuously. Well, well, right. I mean, evil was in the world before Esau, but Esau forsook his birthright and heritage to join the evil, which is quite... It, it, it's quite a profound sin when you really think about it. Esau married women of perverse race, and, and he, being the grandson of Abraham, should have known better. He married women who were from the race of, of God's enemies, and, and even when he saw that his parents were displeased, he didn't seek their counsel. And, and when he tried to correct it, he never sought his parents' counsel to correct it. And, and like you said, he did even worse and, and went and did basically something just as bad when he married the, the Ishmaelite woman. Therefore, even his attempt to resolve the issue ended in failure because he thought from his own carnal mind to resolve it rather than saying, okay, Dad, who should I marry? Maybe I screwed up. Get a woman for me. You do it. He, he never did that. You know, I was just thinking that Esau actually took evil to brand new heights, uh, which formed the, the, the early conceptual traditions of the elders, which later became Judaism, which was a total... Um, circumvention of God's law. And uh, in, in that respect, the, the evil uh, was not only spoiling society, but it was a contempt for what God was trying to construct. In Malachi, I think, uh, the first chapter, it says, they shall build but I will throw down. That's how evil uh, a people whom God hath indignation forever has. As we move on to Romans nine fourteen through 18, we touch bases with our subject, the justice and mercy. Quote, What then shall we say? Is there injustice with God? Of course not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not demand, or depend rather, on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wishes, and he hardens whom he wishes, end quote. We all have a hardness of heart, which is hereditary, but we divorce from it as we mature in Christ. We mortify or kill the old man for a new man in Christ. He saved us, 
not by the righteous deeds we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of new birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. However, not all people grow in grace, but grow in disgrace when their hearts are habitually hardened. It was said of Pharaoh three times that he, he hardened his own heart, but then God hardened his heart judicially. <laughs> By punishing the adversaries of God, he inflicts further hardening, but to his called. The, the punishment is remedial. That might be hard for some people to understand, but let's be reminded of Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, end quote. The Jews say, never forgive, never forget. When God forgives sin, he remembers it no more. We are told to do likewise. Grudges and resentments are the way of Satan. Well, we should encourage all of the sinners amongst our brethren to repentance, even when they have hard hearts. But as Paul warns in Galatians chapter 6, we should do so with humility. Taking the self-righteous position, we may be tempted into that same sin, as Paul warns there, and we ourselves may also fail. So when we consider these sinful acts which are committed by people who were led astray, we should pray that God leads us not into temptation, and praise him that we are not so led, because any one of us may be hardened and end up like Esau. And as we've said, there are many men like Esau around us, all in, in, around us in society today. All of these, um, uh, we call them sports tards, right? That they, they, they love football, beer, and girls, any kind of girls. They don't care, and 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 that they worship Negroes playing sports, and that's their lifestyle. That's their religion. How are they different from Esau? And, and if they have white kids, or, or if their white kids end up with white mates, it's usually just by accident. You know, Bill, for as long as I've been in Christian identity, there's kind of been an ongoing motto or favorite scripture, and it's Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. And really, that's what our people need to take to heart. Well, well, that's true, but we have seen that, what we've seen through Chronicles 7.14 on lawn signs in, in front of Judeo-Christian houses in Bristol, Tennessee. <laughs> we've seen them. And, and the people really have no clue. Uh, I mean, they have their heart in the right place, but they really have no clue what repentance is all about. Because their version of repentance is the version that you you would hear in in a um, in, in a Baptist or a Methodist church where they're preaching that race mixing is okay and and that that's God loves that. Go adopt yourself well, some ha- little Negroes. Help them out. And they have no and they have no clue about who is my people. Right. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, judgment or punishment, if you will. There are some gods of other religions in which punishment is non-existent, while others are quite draconian or even sadistic. The thing that separates 
the God of our Bible from all others is that punishment was not meant to be, as our founding fathers correctly surmised, cruel and unusual, whereas biblical punishment is always meant to be a way of correction to whom it pertains. It is a far superior system of justice coupled with mercy than all other forms of law. In fact, the legal system today, which is not lawful, has institutionalized legal plunder. Prison was never meant to be a biblical punishment. It was always restitution. And if that could not be satisfied, the transgressor would go into bondage. And if that was not honored, the criminal was put to death. It's true that our race is ignorant of wholesale punishment lasting thousands of years. When Israel went whoring after strange gods, she incurred what is called the seven times punishment, lasting 2,520 years. It expired in 1776. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of mass exterminations because the wrath of God could no longer tolerate the wickedness of man. Perhaps the most famous were Noah's flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's true that most of our people do not know that they are under divine judgment because they have not been told by their shepherds that they are Israelites, nor have they been taught the law. The cause and effect of a posterity being blessed or cursed is made clear in Hosea 4.6, quote, Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Well, right. We want the blessings of our ancestors, but we don't want to take responsibility for their sin. That there's a recurrent understanding in Scripture that the children carry the burdens of their parents, as well as the blessings. We who would condemn our brethren condemn ourselves. And that's because every Israelite had an ancestor who assented to the destruction of the priests or the prophets of Yahweh at the hands of a Jezebel, a Saul, or a Jeconiah. Every Israelite had an ancestor who was off-worshipping Baal and having sex with Canaanites of either gender in the groves and the high places of Lebanon. Every Israelite has an ancestor who ravaged his own tribal brethren in the forests and plains of Central and Eastern Europe as our people looted and pillaged their way back to medieval Christian society. And in the biblical standpoint, we are all worthy of punishment for the sins of our fathers, but we are all here today by the mercy of God, none of us being any better than our brethren. The purpose of Christ is for the salvation of our race, and not merely of any particular individuals. Right, and we're still talking about punishment here. Uh, Jesus prophesied both the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. He said, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. He told his people, when they see the signs, to flee to the mountains. Forty years later, an estimated one million Jews were slaughtered by the Roman army. Unfortunately, not all of Jewry were at the same place at the same time, and they lived for another day, in which their wicked souls would evolve and mutate for the latter days of final Antichrist. 
which would require, under God's perfect justice, a final solution. In the end times, they would bemoan a fictitious holocaust because their rabbis were learned enough to know that the tares would be bundled and thrown into a fiery furnace. Their six million lives would eclipse their own butchery of some 30 million Christian peasants in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution. And today... They thrive like noxious weeds based on murders and lies. James 2.13 says, For the one who has shown no mercy will be judged without mercy. We can only imagine half of their crimes. These people have been operating as the dragon behind the scenes of every great empire and are responsible for practically every war since the foundation of the world. There have been dozens, there may have been dozens of holodomors over the past 7,500 years. We'll never know. So much of our history has been um, flushed down a memory hole. Or as I said uh, earlier, quoting a scripture, uh, hidden in darkness. Right. But but we will find out all these things uh, on on the day that Christ promises He would reveal it to us. When the earth gives up her dead, <laughs> right, we will know the extent of our sin and the extent of the treachery of the enemies of our God. You know when Christ said, Woe unto you uh, hypocrites, he was mustering all the passionate grief and despair he could level towards his adversaries. It was just the opposite of expressing any manner of mercy, and the Lord had every right to do so. The thrust of our message tonight can only be racial, if we're to grasp why it appears that justice is not an equal opportunity enforcer. I don't know how abhorrent the abhorrent sin of race mixing became associated with the unpardonable sin and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It was probably somebody with good intentions that didn't know what they were talking about. Recently, there was a newly self-appointed pastor representing Christian identity who's only been involved with our movement for a couple of years and sunk to the low level of error. He said, quote, as our views get more mainstreamed and normalized, a lot of former liberals will seek to bandwagon with us. That's as inevitable as the coming balkanization of the U.S., which all of this polarization is working towards. We will then welcome them, just as Goebbels welcomed the former communist he recruited in Berlin, with this caveat. If you've ever had sex outside your race, or within your gender, there's no coming back from that. I don't care if it was before you were red-pilled or if it's current and she reads Mein Kampf out loud to you every night. Once you go black or Asian or Mexican or anything aside from your own, we don't want you back. We don't have to be that desperate. We can afford to draw that hard line, and in fact, we must. So former race mixers and bisexuals or whatever you call yourselves, don't even try. 
once we have our own nation, if we find out, and we will, then you'll go up against the wall, end quote. (laughs) Oh, man, there's so much wrong with that biblically. Right. Evidently, he's ripping two books out of his Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, which showed mercy upon those returning to Jerusalem from their Babylonian captivity to put away their strange wives and children. Our white ancestors were not put up against a wall and killed because they were shown mercy and forgiveness. So we don't need to get into an unpardonable sin other than to say it is mystery Babylon that is slated for total destruction, not God's covenant people. Catholicism and Judaism both exemplify the blasphemies of universalism and corruption. Both despise the Gospels and supplant another Gospel to the world. Our race is a forgiven race in God's plan for the ages. Otherwise, there would have been no need for Christ to have come and shed his blood for his people. After all, He is our kinsman redeemer. Only Adam fell from grace, and only Adam kind is saved by grace. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The context is us. Well, well, I I have a... I have a few things to say about the unpardonable sin, but I also have a few issues with that quote from the pretender that you refer to. And I would question first whether Goebbels ever uttered those words, especially knowing that the Nuremberg Laws hardly went so far as to preserve the German gene pool to the extent that we would find acceptable. The Germans just didn't think in those terms, typically. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is certainly connected to the gathering of grapes from thorns and figs from thistles. But that goes far beyond simple fornication. Bastards will never be pardoned. Bastards cannot be forgiven. Their existence cannot be forgiven. So that's an unforgivable sin. But neither will those who have introduced those doctrines of Babylon that you speak of into the assemblies of Christ. The results of race mixing, which are the bastards themselves, can never be accepted. But Christ gave even Jezebel space to repent of her fornication. And because she didn't repent of her fornication, and because she enticed men to fornicate with her, to commit fornication with her, Christ said that he would kill their children ostensibly because those children are bastards. Paul made a distinction between fornicators who may be forgiven and the fornicators of this world who face certain destruction. Men and women who commit fornication or or race mix, they can be forgiven, as you pointed out, that Ezra and Nehemiah had forgiven the men who took strange wives so long as they put away their children the women and those who were born of them. So they had to put away their strange wives with the children because the children can't be accepted. That's the unforgivable part. Yes, and 
there again the dynamics of cause and effect. Well, well, the perfect example it is your um your your statement that the Jewish position, the Jewish poison in the well, well. is the mistaken notion that if nothing is impossible for God, then He can turn sons of perdition into sons of God. That to me is a perfect example of the gathering which blasphemes the Holy Spirit because you're really scattering the sheep and and violating that that, um, commandment for the children of Israel to be holy because God is holy. The the answers in Genesis people are perfect examples. It's not the simple race mixer who will certainly have opportunity to repent of his crime that is going to be unforgivable. That's you're right about that. That's not true at all, and and the unforgivable sin should not be reduced to the mere act of race mixing. And you're absolutely right about that, because we can be forgiven of it. And the scripture tells us explicitly in several places that we can be forgiven of our fornication, as so long as we repent, right? But you can't be forgiven of any sin unless you repent. So repentance is always a factor. So it, it's these people that this Ken Ham and these people that um that that teach the children of Israel to race mix, that try to convince them that we're all the same, that everything's okay, that God loves everybody. Are they not blaspheming the Holy Spirit with with those statements? They certainly are. So, yeah, so it, it's the the undiscerning can oversimplify things, and that leads to that that always leads to a self righteous Phariseeism. It always does. When when you try to reduce the laws to your terms and ignore the Scripture, that then that's always going to lead to danger, and and your all your judgment is never going to be just. Well, it seems the the biblical principle here is you you can't mix things that can't be mixed together, whether it's race or hyphenating Christianity with another religion, which is the antithesis of it, or whatever. There are some things that you cannot mix. But you can't mix the holy with something that is unholy. The thing that I think will cause so much woe to those undeserving of mercy goes beyond a transgression of divine law. It's deliberately bearing false witness against God himself. The meme being repeated in society that there's no need for Jesus. It will be woeful for the devilish false accusers of Christ because they cannot forgive his claim to deity nor forget the power they lost over the people. They hate Christ and they hate Christianity and they hate Christians. Their policy is that of no mercy. And if that's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, then go ahead and delight the Antichrist Jew by being the useful idiot in a ministry of fratricide. 
right? The the um the point which I desire to make in unity and divisions is that we should find unity in the fact that all Israel is <laughs> saved. And and we should understand that none of the other races can ever be saved, which is where we must draw the lines of division. But we should never be what well, we should never be divided with our brother. And and it's an important component of the parables that we ourselves aren't going to be forgiven of our sins until we forgive our brethren. If you expect righteous judgment from God, you have to righteously judge your brother. And and that's a, a that that's stated by Christ in the parables. And 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 um agree with your brother before you're taken before the judge. You better find agreement. But with your adversary, your Israelite adversary, he's not asking you to agree with his enemies. He's asking you to agree with your enemies. And and that's where we should draw the lines of unity and division. It's, a, it's an absolute racial line. And understanding this is the beginning of the healing of our people from sin. Paul had basically taught in Romans chapters 2 through 7 that we should all the more desire to keep the law because we know that we are granted the mercy of God. We don't forsake the law because of grace. Paul explains that we don't forsake the law because of grace, but we should all the more desire to keep it because of grace. Yeah, when it says love your enemies, it it does not mean love the enemies of God. Right, never. <laughs> Again, the context is racial. Uh, love your your brethren that you're having a dispute with. Right. Or do you have a not beef the Jews? Go ahead. Or do you have a beef against? Or do you have a grudge against? Right. Well, Christ said in so many words, "Hey, if you're not with me or of the same power, you're against me." If I am gathering, you are scattering. That's when Jesus makes a statement of the so-called unpardonable sin. And these people knew what they were doing. They knew who Christ was. In John 3, 2, Nicodemus told Christ, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And yet they accused the work of the Holy Spirit of being of the prince of devils. Christ was saying, those who know better and yet they blaspheme or speak evil of the power of God cannot be forgiven because it's of the power of God by which God works. And for one to knowingly set himself against that power cannot be forgiven. I mean, these people were so against the Holy Spirit that they paid watchers to say Christ's body was stolen when they knew he had risen via the power of the Holy Spirit. This blasphemous canard is commonly repeated among the Jews to this day, and gullible goyim lap it up like dogs. The bastardization of the world is the forsaking of the sovereignty of God. There would be no race mixing if our people understood the necessity of balancing justice with mercy. But the enemy desires neither. 
Well, well, absolutely not. And and Christ had insisted, quoting Hosea, that it's mercy I desire and not sacrifice. And and that's what Yahweh God said in Hosea, that they that they the people of the old kingdom were self-justifying, that they were making themselves self-righteous, or they were deeming themselves self-righteous through their sacrifices, because they met the requirements of the law. And we see the same thing in these Judeo-Christian churches today, that they do their baptism, and they do their altar calls, and they go to church once a week, and and they're self-righteous, and they look down on everybody who doesn't believe exactly like they do. and, And... who 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 weren't baptized exactly like they were baptized they looked down on those people and and despised their own brethren because they fulfilled the rituals of their little church and and it was the same way under the old kingdom and and it was the same way with the pharisees as christ said they 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 paid attention to all these minor rituals in the law but they forsook love and justice and mercy and after church they go home and watch the negro football league well well, right and and without a doubt it's they who pollute the body of christ what with the intent of and that these enemies of god who have infiltrated the body of christ to the point where they are now able to remove christ himself that these Jewish conversos and and these Jews that have taken over the Christian churches have, have that they have all of Christendom worshiping Jews and and they've taken Jesus the real Christ out of the churches entirely. Well, I think there's a difference between godly and ungodly uh, racially. The trials and suffering of the godly are to refine and purify them. God's furnace is in Zion, Isaiah 31.9. Is it any injustice in God to put his gold into the fire to purify it? Is it any injustice in God by afflicting his people to make them partakers of his holiness? How can it stand with God's justice that all men being equally guilty by nature, he does pass by one and saves another? Why doesn't God deal with all alike? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. God is not bound to be accountable to us, even though his word is a full account of all we need to know. We are bound to be accountable to him. There is no unrighteousness in God because those who perish do so as a matter of self-destruction. And no, that does not include innocent blood. From Isaiah 13:9, we read, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. In the courts of man, they pervert justice all the time. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees. What good is a good law without a good judge? We find injustice in two manners either not to punish where there is fault or to punish where there is no fault. The unjust use false weights and measures and tip the scales of justice. Our race is adulterated where the law first is adulterated. It opens the door for both sheep and goats to enter. 
And what communion hath righteousness with unrighteousness, or the just with the unjust, or the godly with the ungodly, or light with darkness, or Jacob Israel with Esau Edom? None. We have no communion with the unmerciful or with the bastard in our temple. If God be just, and he is, then there will be a day of judgment. He will crown the righteous and condemn the wicked. He will take vengeance, for there must be a day for executing his word against all that offend. And on that great and terrible day for the goat worshippers, their foul mouths shall shut up, and God's justice shall be fully vindicated from all the noise of the unjust and wicked bastards. But God is rich in mercy for us. God will not be mocked. If he originally made the Adamic man to be immortal, then his purpose shall not fail. If the Adamic man found death because he was deceived by the devil, and, and if Christ came that he might destroy the works of the devil, as it says in 1 John 3, 8, then our race must live, and as Paul said, as in Adam all men died, in Christ all men shall be made alive. And there should be no doubt that all Israel shall be saved, but all the devils shall be destroyed. Every plant which God did not plant. That's the lines that we should, what we should judge by. That's the rule that all Christians should judge by. And because all of Israel should be saved, we should be quick to grant mercy to our brother as Christ grants mercy to us. That's a teaching of not only the Gospels, but also Paul's epistles. Well, Bill, I think we've made our case tonight. I pray that uh, the gentleman that that sent us the um, uh, the original questions um, uh, is answered for him, and that um, uh, he will grow in his understanding of um, of justice and mercy, and and the racial aspects of how that pertains to us and our relationship with Christ. Well, well right. The, the mercy which God granted even the patriarchs and the great kings that sinned terribly, it is an example of the mercy that he has for us all in order that he keep the promises which he made to Abraham. And, and there's a greater purpose than that in, in the destruction of the works of the devil right from the very beginning. So, so there's multiple levels of the divine plan of God for our race. We can't see them if we focus on judging our brother. What we can't, we can't come to the, the, the majesty and, and the wonder which is the word of God. What we can't come to the greater truths of our existence. It, if we don't accept the scripture. Well, we can humble ourselves when we think, but for the grace of God, there go I. Well, well right, and true humility is subjecting oneself to the word of God and, and not to your fellow man. If we all subjected ourselves to God, we would all get along. 
Well, we would never have a problem with our with, with our fellow man. Well, thank you, thank you, Mark. Thank you for being here, and and it's always a pleasure. On I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about the technical problems, but yeah. it, it all worked out in the end. All things work together for good. Praise for them Christ. That love God and are called according to His purposes. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Bill.